0: Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 12, a very familiar passage to many of us, a great text as we consider this subject of running the Christian race. Hebrews 12, at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely resisted to the point of shedding your blood. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. The athletes are ready for the game. The fans are in the stadium. Every seat is filled. There is an electricity of excitement as the game begins. Who will be the victor? What will be the outcome? No, it's not the Super Bowl. It's the illustration in these verses that teaches us about What it's like to live with faith in Christ. It's not just a matter of a championship ring which will fade and pass away or a big time bonus check. It's a description of the reality of the daily spiritual battle of every believer. The Christian is like an athlete in the games. We're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, not a stadium of people watching us so much as those who have already run the race and who bear witness to us by the lives that they have lived. What you find in Hebrews chapter 11, the roll call of the Old Testament people of faith, like Abel in chapter 11 verse 4, who by faith still speaks even though he is dead, we're told. Every person who trusts in Jesus Christ is in this race until the day he or she dies or sees Jesus when he returns. And it's not a sprint. It's more like a marathon. We're told here that there are things that hinder. There is sin that easily entangles us. There is a need to persevere, to endure, to keep on keeping on in faith in our Savior and Lord. There is the temptation to grow weary and throw in the towel. If we change the metaphor to football, we could say that it can be a very tough game. You might catch a pass with your arms outstretched while a 300-pound freight train smashes into you from the back. That's often how the Christian life feels. There's suffering that makes you feel like you've just broken some ribs, or there are heartaches that give you a constant limp. There are betrayals even by friends and even loved ones. There are Temptations that can blindside us. There is running and running that may bring you to near exhaustion. How do we persevere in this race which the Christian life represents? Our first point is that persevering in a hard course is God's normal plan for His people. Persevering in the race, in this hard course, that is for all of us, is God's normal plan for his people. We see this in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance, with perseverance. We must not be surprised that the race... Calls for endurance. Don't we need to hear this word of encouragement? Aren't some of the very best athletic events the ones that are not decided till the very end of the game when it's a close game the whole way through and then finally in the last play or the last second of the match, victory is snatched out of defeat? It's an interesting metaphor that the author of the book of Hebrews uses to describe this race, as this idea of this cloud of witnesses, anyone who's involved in sports can tell you how important, what a, a big psychological factor fans are, and that's why every team wants to play the big game in their own stadium, in their, in their own area, so that they can have the most fans. There was a very unusual Major League Baseball game played last April, maybe some of you read about it, but... The game itself wasn't that remarkable. The Baltimore Orioles beat the Chicago White Sox 8-2 to on April ninth, 2015. What made it a unique game, you may guess, is that there were no fans. Camden Yards, the whole stadium, was completely empty because of the recent unrest that had taken place in the city of Baltimore, so they thought it best not to have any fans. And after the game, some of the players were interviewed about what it was like, and one of them said... It was like a training game. It just didn't have the energy that a normal game does. Didn't seem like it was real. So the author says that we, likewise, are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Not so much that they're in the stadium watching us, but the idea here, as I said, is that they are testifying to us by their lives. They are figuratively cheering us on. Their example, their lives are a motivation to us. And we find as we read chapter 11 that it concludes with a list of those for whom the race was far from easy. In verse 36, to pick up the account, it says others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, probably a reference to the prophet Isaiah. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. When we're weary, when we're on the verge of giving up, we need to hear this word. Look at this cloud of witnesses. Look at those who bear testimony. They ran the race, not perfectly by any means, but they finished the course. Don't give up. Our God, our sovereign Lord, is the Lord of our race. We just sung those beautiful words of Samuel Rodegast in that hymn, Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, I shall not be forsaken. That applies to you and to me because of Jesus Christ. We need to keep running. We need to keep trusting Jesus Christ, keep seeking him, keep walking the way of the cross, the way of trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey, as the great hymn says it. We need to endure. Think of those who have gone before you. Think of biblical characters who are such a good example to us, even beyond Hebrews 11. Think of maybe Naomi, or Ruth in that beautiful picture of their faithfulness and their trust in the Lord, or maybe the life of Joseph and his suffering, or Daniel being taken as a young teen into a foreign land of exile and being faithful there and trusting the Lord in that place, or, or maybe someone from church history is a special example to you, maybe someone like William Wilberforce and his courage in ending the slave trade in England, or maybe Amy Carmichael, who who lived all those years in India, faithfully serving the Lord as a missionary. Maybe it's people who have gone before you with a great family heritage, maybe your parents or grandparents or someone else that you remember or have read about. Maybe it's those who are still alive, a mentor or a friend or someone that you can look to and say, look at them, how they've per- persevered. Maybe even those who have suffered much. And there's, there's that sweet aroma of Christ that is part of their lives that is an encouragement to you. You are not alone in this Christian race. Your situation is not unique. There is this cloud of witnesses. It's interesting that people come and talk to me about what they're going through and maybe need some counsel or advice. And, and often there's this sense that as they face deep, deep discouragements or problems or fears that they may think, you know, I come to Westminster Church Sunday morning and everyone just seems like they're doing so well am I the only one that's struggling at all? It just seems like everyone is worshiping and has everything together. And I assure them that is far from the truth. All of us are struggling. Of course, there are seasons of life and there are ups and downs and there's there's not even an evenness in the way the Lord sovereignly distributes suffering. It's a great mystery. But don't give up. What you're experiencing is normal. Persevere. Persevere in the hard course it is part of the normal way that God is dealing with the people of God many of you have been to the gettysburg battlefield maybe you've stood on little round top little round top was the end of the union line that was like a big fish hook there and and little round top at the very end of the end of the line colonel joshua Chamberlain was to, was told to hold the line there here was this formerly before the war, a college professor at Bowdoin College in Maine. He had read some military books, though. And so that second day of Gettysburg when the Confederate forces came again and again like waves on the sea, every time coming further up, and the Union Army line at the end held behind that little stone wall, and you stand there and think what that was like. And finally it was almost dark, and the Confederates were coming one more time, and if they had turned the line they would have turned the whole Union line. It would have been a disaster. Chamberlain had read books. He knew certain things. And he knew that when you were out of ammunition, which the Union line was at that point at the end, you fixed bayonets and you charged. And so he thought this was the normal thing to do. He commanded it. He said, fix bayonets and perform a wheeling charge down Little Round Top. And remarkably, it succeeded Maybe it could be said he just didn't know well enough to know that that really was an amazing feat. It was the normal thing in his mind, and he did it, and victory was achieved. Persevering in a difficult race is God's normal plan for each one of us. But secondly, persevering calls us to daily fight against remaining sin. Persevering in this race calls us to daily fight against remaining sin. Again, we're in verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. We're called here to get rid of everything that encumbers us in this lifelong race of faith, the sin in our life or the things that tend to lead to sin. I was out working with the snowblower last Saturday afternoon, and after I done enough so Patty could come out and look at me from the garage. She took some photos of me in the big piles of snow, and I looked at those afterwards and I thought, is that me? I can't even tell. I've got my overall snow pants on and my coat and my scarf and my hat, and there I am bundled up and covered in white, you know, as you are after you snow, you blow the snow for a while. And uh, the idea here is that wouldn't have been the ideal time to go for a jog around the neighborhood in those clothes. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't have made it around the block. I would have been tripping over myself and all this stuff. That, that, that's the idea here. Paul has the Greek games in mind, the, the athlete who is, is running unhindered. And he says, get rid of everything that trips you up. Really, the sense here is that in our constant struggle against remaining sin, you and I are called to take up our cross daily and put to death sin. It's interesting that the gospel accounts have this commandment of Jesus to us recorded six different times in four gospels to take up our cross daily, which means to seek to do what pleases God and to put to death sinful self. To war, to wage war against sin that remains. To live in such a way as To make choices in daily life that affirm the will of God, even when it may be difficult or hard. 2 Corinthians 5.15 puts it this way, And Christ died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so... Every day, every week, in the small, ordinary ways, Christians are called to get rid of these weights, these sins that trip us up in the race. Or it can also be speaking of major life decisions, important things that don't come along that often, but to make those choices according to the revealed will of God and not according to what the culture tells us, because the culture is often wrong and our only sure guide is the Word of God, a choice involving some particular temptation. It may be that in a difficult path of suffering, the choice involves your attitude of trusting in the Lord and being content in Him and resting in Him, even when you don't have a choice about the particular circumstance that's in your life. Jerry Bridges writes the book, Respectable Sins, We taught that a few years ago, and I still like to think about the fact that that book covers a lot of the normal everyday sins. When you think about, well, what what does this verse mean when it says, get rid of these weights, these sins that so easily cling to us? Here are some of them that he goes through in that book. One is ungodliness, which is maybe a theoretical word for you, but he defines it, living your everyday life. With little or no thought of God, or of God's will, or of God's glory, or of your dependence on God. Ungodliness is basically living your life without regard to God. Or what about discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, the lack of self-control? And then there are the kinds of sins in the areas of impatience and irritability, Irritability, we might say, is a strong sense of annoyance at the usually unintentional faults and failures of others. Doesn't that go to the heart of everyday kinds of sins that are committed in our family rooms and kitchens and hallways? And then there's anger and rage, judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, then the whole area of sins of the tongue, gossip. Slander, the only difference between gossip and slander is uh, slander is a false statement that is made. Gossip is something that may be true but doesn't need to be said. Exaggerating, failing to tell the whole truth, critical speech, negative comments about someone that may be true but don't need to be said, harsh words, sarcasm, insults, ridicule, We can go on and on about the kinds of sins that so easily cling to us. Our calling is that we run the race by resolving daily to put to death remaining sin, to take to the cross of Jesus Christ all the weights and sins that so easily cling to you and to me. But finally, and really at the Culmination of this text, our perseverance calls us to constantly look to Jesus Christ. Persevering in this race calls us to constantly look to Jesus Christ. That's the very heart of it, fixing your eye on Jesus Christ, looking to Jesus, the, foundation, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Verse 2. I want us to look at three ways we need to look to Jesus Christ here under this third point. The first way is this. We must look to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. Think about the truth that is emphasized here in terms of Jesus' ministry to us. He's the author of our faith. That means our faith was initiated by him. He sovereignly brought us to faith. Ephesians 2 tells us, that we are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. It is all God's doing. Yes, we participate in it. We exercise saving faith, but it's initiated by God. And it also, Scripture makes it clear that he is the perfecter of our faith. He's the finisher, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. When you fly on a plane, they say the most dangerous times are takeoff and landing. A retired airline pilot after the first service this morning said, John, actually, we all used to say it's the drive to the airport. And I said, okay, I'll give you that. (laughs) All right. But given that caveat, you always hope that in the meantime, the pilots are doing their job too and flying the plane well and not falling asleep up there in the front behind that locked door. Jesus is the author and perfecter, which clearly means that we can fully trust him for the beginning, the end, and every moment in between. We can rest in his power and wisdom during what we might say the long flight of this race, this Christian journey from the moment we first believed until we see him in glory. And the point of this description here, about Jesus being the author and perfecter is to encourage us in this race, especially in the tough times, that we would look to him, that we would, by faith, trust in him. He will land the pain, and he will do everything in between. Yes, we have to keep running. We have to keep putting aside every weight and sin and trusting in him But he will ultimately be the one who carries us. Thanks be to God. We persevere because he preserves us. I want us to stop and reflect on this because it doesn't come easily to us. Many of you have cameras on your phones or your camera has that little square in the middle of the screen that you're to focus on whatever you're taking the picture of. Think about that when it comes to living our lives and the calling of this verse to fix our eyes on Jesus, to look to him. We could be like Peter who looked at the waves instead of Jesus and he began to sink, we're told. Or we can keep the focus of our faith on Jesus, irrespective of the problems, irrespective of the people around us who may hurt us or who may not live up to our expectations. We can fix our eyes on him, whatever the problems might be this particular week, or even whatever we might tend to want out of our lives, the calling of Scripture is to keep the focus of our faith on Jesus Christ and look at the rest of our lives in light of that. Jesus is great compared to every obstacle. Jesus is more desirable than any competing pleasure. And Jesus is able to give us power as we sense and know that we are fundamentally weak and we need his strength every day. He is the author and finisher. But secondly, another way to look at him is we must look to Jesus as our example of ultimate cross-bearing. It's important that you remember this. Jesus is something much more than merely our example. We know that's the case. He is our Savior. He died for us. He reigns and lives for us to save us ultimately. But he is also our example. And this passage is telling us to fix our eyes on him as our example, especially in going the way of the cross. Notice how that truth is brought out here at the second part of verse 2 and verse 3. Who for the joy... That was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Isn't it interesting the way Jesus went the way of the cross? And the way he did that certainly was far beyond anything that we're ever called to do, but it is to be an example for us. Don't we all know that it's very easy for us to feel as if we'd prefer not to have to bear any crosses in our lives? But that's not God's design. We know that's the case. There are times that we might even try to avoid the way of the cross, but our Father knows what is best. And it's interesting in verse 4 here, the author reminds the Hebrew Christians that they have not yet struggled against sin to the point of shedding their blood. In other words, they haven't died fighting against sin. And the particular sin he had in mind was the persecution they were experiencing and then possibly giving way to fear and renouncing their faith. That was the particular trial and temptation that they faced after starting the race very well. And he says, you haven't yet shed your blood. Look at Jesus Christ when you're tempted to grow weary. Consider the opposition he endured. I like the way Jesus describes his purpose in Luke 12, 49 and 50. When he's talking about what he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And he says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Interesting how he talks about that. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus was experiencing distress. He even looked at this somewhat like we would look at things and think, I can't wait till that difficult thing is done. Maybe you've got an exam coming up or paper to write, and you're thinking, I'll be so glad when I'm done with that. There's a very real sense in which Jesus, in his humanity, he says he's undergoing great distress until it's accomplished, until the cross is behind him. It wasn't something that we would say was naturally easy or fun by any means. I don't know about you, but my experience has been that Christians very often short circuit the helpfulness of this remedy for facing hardship. God is saying, when cross-bearing feels costly, and by the way, cross-bearing always feels costly, fix your eyes on Jesus, trust in him to give you strength. That was the first point. He's the author and finisher. But also, meditate on how he lived, we're being told, how he bore his cross faithfully. Yes, we often tend to think, but he's different from me. Well, yes, he is the God-man. That is true. But God is telling us it will be a source of real comfort and strengthening and hope for you to look to His example. He is able to sympathize with us because He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Don't rationalize yourself out of this blessing of fixing your faith on Him and being reminded of His example, His wrestlings in the garden his temptations, what he faced. Focus on his cross and your cross will not feel as heavy. I like the way it tells us in verse 3, consider him, consider him. No matter what the grief might be, no matter what the temptation might be, no matter how broken your life feels, consider him. And that brings us to the third way to look at him. We must look to Jesus as the pattern of joy-filled hope beyond the cross. The pattern of joy-filled hope beyond the cross, that joy-saturated hope even in the deepest cross-bearing. Jesus' motivation is given to us here as a pattern of our motivation as well. And we're told that for the joy that was set before him, verse 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the same shame. Yes, the cross was very difficult, but he looked beyond the cross for this soul-refreshing joy, even in the dark hour of Gethsemane, the the joy of reunion with his father and fellowship with his father on the other side of the cross, the joy of having, we're told in Ephesians, everything put under his feet, the joy of, Isaiah 53 talks about the joy of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. He will see the travail of his soul, and he will be satisfied. The motivation pointed to here is the same as that described in chapter 11. There we find that Abraham obeyed by faith and made his home in the promised land. Abraham had to go in this strange land, and he was looking forward, we're told, to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham looked beyond the cross-bearing of leaving all that was familiar and going to a strange place. Or Moses, we're told, chooses mistreatment and disgrace with the people of God rather than enjoy all the sinful pleasures of Egypt. Why? Because of something more valuable than Egypt's treasures. We're told... That he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Part of fixing our eyes on Christ means that you and I have this same expectation of joy that is in that very pathway of the cross. During the way of the cross, and especially beyond the cross. Absolute confidence that there will be a day when every sin will be done away with, when every tear will be wiped from our eyes, and we will be forever with the Lord. What joyful expectation we have. It's like that great spiritual song that puts it this way. You can have everything, but give me Jesus. That's the joy beyond the cross. Many of you have heard the great description by C.S. Lewis in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. Let me read a part of it to you here. I can't do better than his words. If, if there lurks, he says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward... And the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased. Jesus is our full and soul-refreshing joy. Keep that joy before your heart and mind. Drink deeply of that joy. Live out of that joy. Fight temptation and cast away every weight and sin that clings with that joy. Suffer whatever cross the Lord may have sovereignly put in your life in hope that that joy one day will swallow up every cross that you bear. How is God calling you to fix your eye on Jesus Christ this morning? Is he calling you to do that maybe for the first time? Maybe you've never truly placed your trust in Jesus Christ and submitted your life to Him as your Lord. That's the very beginning of the pilgrim journey, the the, the beginning of this race. And my exhortation to you would be come to Jesus Christ, and receive the forgiveness of all your sins and eternal life. Maybe he's calling you to trust in him in some dark, deep valley that you've been in for some time. Trust in him, consider him. Maybe he's calling you as an example to take up your cross. When you face a particular temptation in your life or some some sin that you especially need his help, that's clinging to you, and you know that you must look to him above all. David Brainerd spent the final years of his short life in taking the gospel to the Native Americans in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. He died of tuberculosis after ministering to them for four years at age twenty nine. Listen to what he writes just a few months before his death. I think this aptly sums up the joy beyond the cross. He says, Oh, I longed to fill the remaining moments all for God. Though my body was so feeble and wearied with preaching and much private conversation, yet I wanted to sit up all night to do something for God. To God, the giver of these refreshments, be glory forever and ever. Amen. David Brainerd certainly struggled with depression at times, struggled with discouragements, was very deeply troubled by his tuberculosis and other related problems and illnesses, but he had largely learned to fix his eye on Jesus Christ through hardship, through loneliness, through severe pain. May each one of us likewise seek to do the same as we rest in the soul-satisfying refreshment of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for such a great Savior as Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, healing, loving. We thank you that he is with us to the end, and we pray that you would help each of us to be considering him this week as we run the race before us. In his name we pray. Amen.